0: let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Appreciated Sean uh, teaching last weekend on biblical community, and if you do have a heart to get into those connect groups, those will start uh, in February. I had a chance to teach at Calvary Chapel Cherry Creek. They call it C4 because of all of the C's in their, their name. Uh, it was really a, a neat experience. They're a sister church of Rocky Mountain Calvary, about 250 uh, people, and God's really blessing and moving there in Centennial, and they partner with us on our men's retreat and some of our youth retreats, so it's fun to just go up there and uh, see what the Lord was doing in their church, and good to be back here uh, this morning. I want to encourage us as we prepare to hear the word that sometimes whenever we do something over and over again, uh, it does become a routine. In some ways, we can get uh, lulled to sleep. Uh, Like, we have a pattern for our services here at church. Normally, we have four songs, then announcements, then teaching. But today, we did three, and we're going to do two at the end. Uh, Like, we're really stepping out today. (laughs) And then as we go through this routine, our our own liturgy that we've created at Rocky Mountain Calvary, we can lose that sense of expectation for God to meet us. Maybe even in our songs as we're singing, we're not thinking about what we're singing or as we're reading, we're not coming with the heart of faith that God wants to speak to us. And so as we prepare our hearts, let's renew that sense of expectation that God wants to speak to us through his word. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you're here with us and that you reveal yourself to us. And God, we do ask that you would renew in us that sense of faith, that sense of anticipation as we read your word, that it wouldn't just be a a habit without relationship, a routine without relationship. We know that real life change and greater understanding of you happens through the power of the Holy Spirit So Father, would you send the Holy Spirit? Would you be gracious enough right now to to just send your Spirit to teach us? Would you help us to be focused? Would you take those distractions, those burdens that are weighing us? And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. A manifesto, there's been some famous manifestos throughout the years. For us, it's our Declaration of Independence. That's our famous manifesto as a country. Martin Luther King Jr., I Have a Dream, was his famous manifesto that had great impact. Some manifestos were not so positive. Karl Marx, in his manifesto, his communist manifesto. But what we're going to read this morning is We See Christ's manifesto. It's his heart, his passion, his relationship with the Father, and the way in which we're in relationship uh, with God. The context is Jesus has just healed a man at the Pool of Bethesda who was paralyzed for 38 years. The controversy is Christ told him to rise, take up his bed on the Sabbath day. So the religious leaders get very angry at Christ have a conversation with Christ, and Christ very clearly states that he's God. Now they want to kill him. The persecution on Christ begins, and Christ doesn't back down. He is the lamb who's laying down his life, but he's also the lion who is roaring, and he very clearly challenges these religious leaders in this second half of the chapter. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. Salvation begins with hearing. Jesus says those who hear him and believe in him, Christ, the one who is sent by the Father, then they have everlasting life. If you know the Lord, You remember back to a time when you began to to hear Christ. Your focus, your attention got placed upon him. You heard his words, you heard the gospel and responded in faith. Maybe this morning you're examining the claims of Christ and trying to decide if you wanna surrender your life to Christ. The beginning of that process is hearing him, hearing his words, then believing, and that believing then results in everlasting life. I don't know about you, but everlasting life just keeps sounding better and better, doesn't it? The reality of heaven. In this world, we're going to have tribulations. It's going to be painful and difficult and tough. But be of good cheer. He's overcome the world. We're closer to heaven than we've ever been before. Isn't that encouraging, right? Because we move forward in our lives. We're looking forward to his return. We're looking forward to the rapture of the church a great promise with everlasting life is that you shall not come into judgment but you've passed from death to life it's a different spiritual condition before you knew christ you're dead in your sins we were in a place of god's righteous judgment but we're no longer under his judgment we're under his grace his forgiveness our position in christ jesus and we've gone from death to life we've entered into life through the forgiveness of christ in verse 25, most assuredly or very, verily, verily, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This speaks of the future resurrection of all believers. There's gonna be that point in time when Jesus speaks and all believers rise and receive their glorified bodies. And this shows the power of Christ. The moment that you die as a believer, you go home to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that we don't receive our glorified bodies until the second coming of Christ. And at that moment of the last trump, then the dead in Christ will rise. So we wonder, what kind of state are we in in heaven without our glorified bodies? But remember, time is very different in heaven. So I don't think we're going to be waiting around for our glorified bodies, it's much more like an eternal now. So this speaks to the point when the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is gonna speak, and then the graves are opened. Lazarus was a little foreshadowing of this. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and he was raised back to this life, and eventually Christ is gonna speak and will receive our glorified bodies. That's why I don't worry about working out too much. Just joking. Verse 26, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. So the father inherently in himself is life, has life, contains life, and has given that to the son. We're alive, but we don't contain life in and of ourselves. Your parents participated in God's plan, and because of that, you have life. Why are you here? Because your parents got frisky one night. That's the reality of it, right? And then they entered into God's design of being able to create. God is the creator, and He's given us the ability to create through sexual intimacy. And then God blesses with conception, and, and there's a child, and we're alive, but our lives are very fragile, aren't they? It really doesn't take a lot for us to die or to pass away. One little thing goes wrong in our bodies, and then we're done. But with God, he in and of himself is life. And he has given that to the son. And Jesus has the power to be able to extend eternal life because he is life. In verse 27, and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. In this manifesto of Christ, we see the relationship between the father and the son. And the Father has given to Jesus the authority to be the judge. And I can't think of a greater one to be the judge than Jesus because he's also the sacrifice. He left heaven, came in human flesh, died upon the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to pay the judgment for our sin. To all who believe are saved. Jesus would much rather be your savior than your judge. Amen? Amen. And it's only to those that reject him as savior that they receive his judgment. So Christ will be the one that is making the judgment of eternal salvation or eternal condemnation. In verse twenty-eight, do not marvel at this, for the hours coming in which all in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation, all are going to live eternally. The question is location. Location, location, location is never more true in eternity. Jesus is speaking to Jews. He's speaking to the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. They're experts in the Old Testament. This idea that all are going to live eternally is not new. In Daniel 12, uh, verse 2, it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. If all we studied was verse 29, we may come away with a works-based salvation. That if you do good, you're raised to resurrection of life. But if you do evil, then you're going to experience the resurrection of condemnation. But we know from just verse 24 of this same chapter that Jesus said it's those who hear and believe that have everlasting life. Turn over one page, John six twenty nine. Just one page over in your Bibles. John chapter six, verse 29. Jesus makes it very clear of the issue of faith. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. This is the work of God to believe in Christ, the one whom the Father sent. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever works real hard, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So where do works come in? What is Jesus teaching here about works? Works don't save us, but they are evidence of the fact that we are saved, When Christ comes into our lives, he changes us. Not to the point of perfection before we go home to be with the Lord, but we can look back on our lives and go, there is a distinct difference because Christ is in my life. So salvation comes through faith in Christ alone, but works are the result of the reality of Christ in our lives. If you took a rock and you threw it into a pond, a lake that was calm and clear, no wind, That rock has a rippling effect and when Christ comes into our lives, there's going to be a positive effect. In verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus expresses here, of myself, I can do nothing. So if I'm judging it's a righteous judgment. I don't seek to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father. Jesus not being able to do anything absent of the Father is a choice. We know that Jesus has the capacity or the ability to go out on his own. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's wrestling with the will of the Father, and he says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. The cross, let this suffering pass for me nevertheless not my will but your will be done. Jesus chose this place of dependency upon the father. He chose to not seek his will, to not seek his agenda and to live by the will of the father. So if this is the case in Christ's life, how much more does it need to be in my life where I'm dependent upon the father, where I'm choosing to say I'm not going to try to do things in my own strength. I'm not going to try to do things apart from trust and guidance in the Lord. This is exactly what God has been challenging me on and speaking to me on over the last uh, two weeks, to not try to do things in my own strength apart from trusting in him, to really surrender to his will. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible. We're in Genesis. I'd love for you to come out and join us. We're studying the life of Abraham And we were looking at this just three days ago on Wednesday night where Abraham and Sarah are at this place where they're getting older and older and older. God has promised them a child and she's barren. She decides with Abraham to take things into her own hands to do things apart from God's guidance and depending upon the Lord. And there was something there that was logical and made sense and that was Hagar, her maidservant, says, Abraham, why don't you just go ahead and take her as your wife, and then we'll be able to have a child, and this promise will be fulfilled. And as you read continuing there in Genesis, is it really made things worse. And God was gracious, gracious to Hagar, gracious to Ishmael, but it wasn't what the Lord intended. And we see the ramifications of that today, as Ishmael then birthed the Arab nations, and Isaac birthed the nation of Israel. So for me, the last two months, there's been some trials and difficulties that are a little unique in my life, and so the way that I responded is I put together a list that I thought would help this trial that I was going through, and I tend to think that I'm logical. If there's a challenge, that seems to be my mode of operation is okay. Like what are, what are four or five things that could, could help in this difficulty? And there was nothing sinful about my list. There's nothing wrong with, with the list in and of itself. But what was wrong with the list is God wasn't at the top of the list. And it was really being done from a place where not from trust in the Lord of, of God, you've got to work in this situation And God, how do you want to guide me in this situation? But I need fruit in this situation, so I'm going to implement my list. Does that make sense? And God, in his love for me, has not blessed my list, right? And saying, hey, wait a second, son, you you need to depend on me. You need to choose to come to that place of humility that you can do nothing apart from me. And then wrestling with my will and my agenda. Because... I have a desire of how I want things to go in in this difficulty and and in this challenge. And to really get to that place of saying, God, not only do I trust you and depend upon you, but also I'm willing to let go of my will. I'm willing to let go of, of my plan and what I think is best in this situation and follow your will and your plan. And when we choose to get to that place of trust, and when we get to that place of tr- surrender, and I felt this in me, it was, it was Friday when I really got to this place in my own heart and in these things that I'm working through, As I felt my soul unlock. I felt peace inside of me because I finally got to that place of saying, all right, God, I'm going to trust you and I'm ready to do your will. Now, the challenge of that is to do that daily, Right? To to daily say, I'm choosing to depend upon the Lord. I'm choosing to trust in the Lord, and I want his will. But this is the way Jesus lived, and if we choose it as well, we will find peace. Because we're coming underneath the shadow of his wings at that point. True? We're saying, Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm underneath your protection and under your will. We know this, that the will of God is the best place for us to be. Amen? Agreed? Right? And when we get to that place, that's that place of peace. In verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Jesus now switches gears as he's talking to those that are his adversaries. And he's saying, if I was my own witness, if I testified to myself, it wouldn't be true. And he goes through five really powerful witnesses to the reality that Jesus is God. This word witness or testify is really key in John's writing. John wrote the Gospel of John, some epistles, and also the book of Revelation. And he uses the word witness or testify 167 times. In the Gospel of John, he uses it 47 times of this testimony of who Christ is. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 19, it says, By the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. There has to be witnesses to validate the truth of what someone is claiming. So here's the first witness in verse 32. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that this witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved." So the first that bore witness of Jesus Christ is John the Baptist. It's a little bit confusing because we're reading from John the disciple who is telling us about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist came on the scene. We've studied him in the Gospel of John, the strong testimony that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus is saying, I'm not declaring this for my own benefit because I don't receive testimony from man. I didn't need John to bear witness of me. But John did bear witness so that you would be saved. The value of John the Baptist's testimony is for us and those that were hearing Christ at this moment. Describing John the Baptist in verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. That's a great compliment. This guy was on fire for the Lord. He was a bright light, and for a time, the religious leaders in the nation of Israel was willing to embrace John the Baptist's message, but then they changed their minds. In verse 36, but I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So the first is John the Baptist. The second is Christ's works. Christ's works are a testimony that Jesus is God. Who else feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Who else raises the dead? Who else casts out demons? Who else brings healing? But the greatest of Christ's works is his crucifixion and his resurrection. He says there's yet future works that that I'm gonna do to glorify the Father. Jesus predicted his death and how he would die, that he would be crucified. Predicted his resurrection three days later. And that's the chief of his works to die for our sins and to rise again and to proclaim forgiveness for us. If you know Christ, this should encourage our faith of why we believe that Jesus is God. If you're examining Christ, going, is he who he claimed to be? Look at the resurrection of Christ, look at his works. They're a testimony to his reality. In verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. The third testimony is the testimony of the Father. The Father himself who sent me has testified of me. Two times the Father speaks audibly from heaven. Like people heard the voice of the Father. That's always intrigued me. I want to know what God's voice sounds like. That's going to be fun in heaven to, to go, oh, this is what your voice uh, sounds like. We always picture it big and booming and kind of stern. This is my beloved son, right? I can't even do it. I can't even give it justice. Because my voice is up here. This is my beloved son, right? So, but twice, that was what Christ declared at the baptism of Christ and also the trans. Mount of Transfiguration where Christ's glory was able to be seen. There's no greater validation, there's no greater testimony than for the Father to speak and say, this is my Son, and I'm well pleased in Him. I want you to hear Him. I want you to focus on Him. I want you to listen to Him. We don't know of any other time recorded in Scripture where God speaks audibly in a public way to emphasize for people to focus upon his son. This is a really unique thing for God to speak audibly and the focus is on the validation of Christ. Jesus begins to confront now. He begins to turn to these religious leaders that want to kill him and he says, but you do not have his word abiding in you Because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Because they don't believe in Christ, they're rejecting Christ, they don't have the word of God abiding in them, living in them. This would be a shock because these men have dedicated their lives to study the scripture. But yet God's word is not living in them. And this is humbling because we can study We can scrutinize, we can know the original language, we can read commentaries, but yet we can still get to a place even after doing all of that work where God's word's not in us. How could that be? Because it has to do with our hearts, our heart condition. And Jesus taught the parable of the sower that the seed is the word of God, but the heart in which we approach the word of God determines the outcome. And so having that heart that is fertile soil where the word of God could be planted and what's preventing them from the word of God abiding in them is belief in Christ and trusting that Jesus is who he said he is. And so we always want to be careful, even as believers, as we approach the word of God of saying, God, would you search my heart? Would you know my heart? And is my heart really in a place to receive from you? Or is my heart hard? Is it crowded? Is there unbelief? Is there things that are preventing your word from abiding in me and living in me? In verse 39, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. Two misconceptions. The first is, as they search the scriptures for in the scriptures, they think that's where they will receive eternal life. That's wrong. The Bible cannot produce eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. I want to be clear on this. So we value the scriptures, and we love the scriptures, because the scriptures introduce us to Christ. But it's Christ who's the Savior, not the Bible. Does that make sense? This is a powerful book, and it's truth. But it's only as good as you realize that it points you to Jesus for salvation and a personal, real relationship with Christ. You know, it's not just a manual. It's not just a how-to book. It's pointing us to a relationship with Christ. So That was their first misconception, is that the scriptures can produce eternal life. And then the second is where they miss the whole entire point. They had the Old Testament. The New Testament isn't written yet. It's happening. And here they're, they're reading and they're reading and reading and studying. Those words, search the scriptures, it implies scrutiny or tracking down. The idea is a dog that is smelling and on scent to, to try to find uh, something. If you've ever seen a, a police dog work and smell for drugs, man, they're after it. And that's the way that they searched the scriptures But they missed the whole point. And Jesus says the whole entire point is it's about me. And as we do study the scriptures, we need to be looking for Christ. And Christ is throughout the Old Testament. And he is the point of the Gospels, and he's the center stage of the epistles. And these scriptures, to me, they do speak of warning, and they're a little bit scary. Because if we're not careful, we could have a life where we're committed to studying the Word, but yet at the end of it, we've missed the point entirely. And I've seen groups like that, where they love the Word of God and they study the Word of God faithfully, but they've missed the point and Jesus is way back in their priority and their pet doctrine becomes very important to them. But they're not focused in about Christ. Church, do you know this is not a book about marriage? There's very little in here about marriage over the entire content of Genesis to Revelation. You can cherry pick the scriptures and find a lot of really important principles in here about marriage, but this was not written for you to have a great marriage. This is not about finances. This is not written so that you can prosper financially. You can cherry pick the scriptures and find really important principles that help financially. Have there been people that don't know Jesus, that have gone to hell, that have taken financial principles from the scriptures and applied it to their life? Absolutely. This is not a book on how to build a nation. This is not a book on how America is to prosper politically. This is about Jesus. This is about Jesus. It's, Jesus. it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. And as you fall in love with Jesus and you realize who he is, will he impact your marriage? And will he work in your marriage? Absolutely. As you focus on Christ, will he bring guidance to your finances? Yes, but he still doesn't promise that you're gonna prosper financially. As a nation turns to Jesus, will God then, by his grace, help that nation? Absolutely, right? But we miss the point so many times, don't we? And we get focused on a subset of things that is not the priority. And when was the last time maybe you approached the scriptures with a hunger to learn about Jesus? You're saying, this is not a self help book of how I can be a better husband, a better dad, a better businessman, or a better businesswoman. This is not about how to make my life great. And to approach it saying, I want to know Jesus. This is his love letter to me. And our country needs a spiritual revival. But it's only gonna happen one way. And that's where there's first individual revivals in our lives where we get focused back on Jesus Christ. And to see this as God's love letter to me, I get to know Christ. I get to understand his love for me. So I wanna heed that warning because I get distracted, you know? I wanna have a good marriage and I wanna be a good dad and I want my finances to be set up in a, in a proper way. I would love to see our country prosper and move forward into the future. But the honesty about this book is, God doesn't love America more than any other country. There's nowhere in here that says God's an American. It says, for God so loved the world. And in all of eternity, God's not concerned about nations. When we get to heaven, it's not going to be about this country or that country. It's going to be about Jesus, amen? And so we got to get back to what the message of the scripture is, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. If I offended you, uh, Pastor Robert's email is... (laughs) No, no verse 40 but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life and here's the heart of the issue is they didn't want to come to Jesus they didn't want the message in verse 41 i do not receive honor from men but i know that you do not have the love of god in you another very indicting statement the word of god doesn't abide in you you've missed the point of the scriptures And God's love doesn't abide in you. I've come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Coming in the Father's name is coming in the character and the nature of the Father. So Jesus comes in the name of the Father, he's not received, but if someone comes in their own name, they will be received. Many times, self-promotion is is received over Christ. We're more attracted to someone promoting themselves than to pointing us to Jesus. In verse 44, how can you believe when you receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? What's preventing them from faith is they're more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. And the scribes and the Pharisees, this is something that Jesus confronted often, is that they lived for the praise of men and they weren't concerned about honoring God. And maybe for you, one of the things that's keeping you from trusting Christ for salvation is what do people think? If I ask Christ to be my savior, that's gonna result in rejection from my friends or rejection from my family or I'm gonna be an oddball at work. And that was the case for these scribes and Pharisees. They worried more about what people thought than what God thought. Verse 45, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father there is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. Moses was the giver of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. And Moses, the law is going to be the one that accuses them before God. Because the law can do one of two things, this set of standards. It can drive us to Christ, where we realize we need a Savior, and Jesus forgives our sins. Or we can say, I can try to do it on my own, and then the law holds us accountable before a holy God. In verse 46, it says, for if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. So Jesus goes back to this theme that the Old Testament scripture is about Jesus. And there's so many places in Moses' writings where it clearly points to Christ. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses prophesied of a prophet who would be like Moses, and that ultimately is Jesus. He is the ultimate prophet. Prophet. You remember when the children of Israel were grumbling and complaining and God sent snakes that started to bite them and they were dying from the snake bites? Moses cried out to God and God says, put a bronze serpent up and everyone who looks at this bronze serpent on the, the pole will be healed. They'll be saved from dying from these snake bites. And then Jesus said that he's the serpent who is lifted up in the wilderness, that Jesus is lifted up on the cross and all that look to Jesus in faith are saved. Jesus is the manna that came from heaven, that daily bread that was given to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Pretty nice, honey nut Cheerios every morning from God, right? And what does Jesus say? He says, I am the bread from heaven. That manna pointed to Christ, the rock. There was a rock that Moses spoke to and the water came forth. And the New Testament tells us that that pointed to Jesus, that he's the rock in which living water comes from. Every sacrifice in the Levitical system in the book of Leviticus points to Christ. And so as they were studying the scriptures, they should have gotten the message that it was pointing to Christ. In verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? When's it going to be enough? And at what point are you going to to turn in faith? And I wanna ask you that same question. In just a moment, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to receive Christ as your savior. And I don't wanna make the mistake of thinking that everyone here has trusted Christ for salvation. And when is there enough testimony in your life, enough evidence, if you would, in your life to bring you to a place of trusting in Jesus? We see the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of the works of Christ the testimony of the Father, the testimony of the Scripture, the testimony of Moses. I bet also you have testimony in your own life of believers, people's lives that you've seen changed by the love of Christ. And I want you to hear, Jesus loves you. The Father loves you. God loves you. It's the love of God that drove Jesus to the cross to die for your sins. And I believe God is making you aware of your sin. We're all sinners, I want to be clear, if you decide to receive Christ, what are you doing? You're turning from sin. I know that I'm a sinner. I'm repenting of my sin. And I'm choosing to believe that Jesus is God, that he died for my sin and rose again. And inviting him to be the Lord of your life. Where Jesus isn't the throne of your life and he'll begin to change you from the inside out. And when we pray, I'm going to give you an opportunity to raise your hand to the Lord and say, Jesus, would you save me? But then also for us as believers, one of the uncomfortable things is we may be closer to the scribes and the Pharisees than we'd like to think. That there may be more attributes of the scribes and Pharisees in me than than I want to admit. And is it possible that we've missed the point to some degree? And saying, let's get back to the place of getting in the word of God to know the son of God, that it is God's love letter to me and allow the Lord to, to stir us in that way, to stir us in that, in that manner, that the word of God would begin to become alive to us again in our relationship with Christ. So let's pray together and then we're going to move into communion this morning. Jesus, we thank you for your pursuit of us, your your love for us. Lord, you have created us. You know each person that is here this morning, that's listening on the live stream. Would you speak to them? Would you call them by name? Would you reveal your personal love? If you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior, it makes sense to you. You haven't made this decision before and you're saying, I see the evidence, I see the testimony that Jesus is God, that he died for my sins and rose again. I'm ready to believe him and trust him and receive his forgiveness. Would you raise your hand and leave it up and I'd like to say a prayer with you, lead you in a prayer. See your hand there in the back, praise the Lord. Praise God, I see your hand here in the front. Praise the Lord, awesome. Praise God, buddy, awesome. Praise the Lord. See your hand in the back as well. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Those of you that have your hand raised, just leave it up. If you're listening on the live stream and God's touching your heart, just raise your hand to Christ. Say this prayer with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God. That you died for my sins and rose again. I repent of my sin and receive your grace and forgiveness. Be the Lord of my life. You can put your hands down. Father, we rejoice. We know that salvation is your work. We're so thankful for those that have just trusted you for salvation. Would you bless them? Would you protect them? And would you grow them in you? And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.